Tantamount Season 1 is a true crime podcast on the Washington, D.C. serial killer, the Freeway Phantom. Due to the graphic nature, it is not intended for those under the age of 18. I'm Blaine Pardo, and I'm an author. I write in a number of different genres, science fiction, military history, and true crime. True crime is more of a passion with me. I cut my teeth on it as a kid with the book Helter Skelter, and I've really not stopped reading in that genre. I'm not a detective, but I love doing the research and bringing good stories to life. I get to meet some fascinating and downright scary people writing true crime books. I don't do my true crime writing alone. I write with my daughter, Victoria Hester, who is also co-host of this podcast. We are the first father-daughter duo writing true crime in these kinds of books. Our focus is primarily on cold cases, especially the older cold cases. Our relationship is, well, different. After all, not a lot of fathers haul their daughters to crime scenes as a bonding activity. It's okay, though. We both love it. Personally, I think my wife is happy that I have someone to share information with on cases other than her. Victoria is an awesome-sounding board for ideas. I'm Victoria Hester. My dad and I write about crimes that don't get solved. It really is that simple. I won't kid you. It's a little creepy at times. We are not above outing suspects in our work. In many cases, we know that if the killers are still alive, chances are they're reading our books and our blogs and most likely even listening to these podcasts. They want to follow their crimes. We are putting ourselves out there to get the details of all the cases out there the things that might lead to tips that can bring about justice for the victims. We piss off killers that are still on the streets, people that don't want us to draw attention to what they did. But that's just how we roll. Tantamount Season 1 is about the Washington, D.C. Freeway Phantom, a serial killer that operated for at least 579 days in the nation's capital in 1971 and 1972. This was a murderer that kidnapped his victims, sexually assaulted them, strangled them, and dumped their bodies along major highways in Washington, D.C., namely I-295. He operated with impunity, brazenly. Police were baffled, confused, and frustrated. Worse, the killer taunted the authorities. He made it a personal game with the investigators, one he was winning up until now. This is Episode 1, The Start of Terror. The Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, known as MPD, had almost no experience with serial killers back then. The phrase serial killer didn't even exist in 1971. Mistakes were bound to happen. 
This was a spree of murders that had a lot of twists and turns. You've got false confessions, tantalizing suspects, and a police department that had mishandled and even destroyed most of the evidence in these crimes. It's a wild ride at times. This is the kind of case where, when you think you have it figured out, it hangs sharp to the left into the bazaar. As a storyteller, I want to tell you a comprehensive tale about the Freeway Phantom killings. It isn't easy to do. I think the best place to start is how we got involved with these murders. There are a lot of compelling cold cases out there. How do we as writers and investigators pick the ones to dive into? After all, we spent almost two years researching these horrific crimes. It's no small investment of our time. Victoria, let's start with you. What triggers you to thinking that this case is worth pursuing? For me, it was the obscurity of the case. Yes, the Washington Post covered the murders pretty extensively, but that was more out of the fact that it was a local story and that there was a racial implication that the police were ignoring the murders because the victims were black. There was also a lot of confusion we found early on, especially around the Green Vega gang and their possible involvement. For me, I think it came down to the fact that we could really bring out the details of these crimes to light. After we met with Romaine Jenkins, one of the earliest surviving detectives who worked on the cases, I was sold on it. She really got me hooked onto the nuances of these murders. I figured if she hasn't let go of these cases after all these years, maybe I shouldn't either. For me, I like a story that has a hook and a twist. If a story has both of these elements, it floats to the top of my list to look into, and the Freeway Phantom cases have both. It has to have some great characters, too. We worked with former detectives on these cases, as well as retired FBI agents, including Jim Fitzgerald, the man that was instrumental in apprehending the Unabomber. But more on that later. I mentioned a hook, so let's explore that. A hook is what draws you in. In this case, it was a note. The killer had one of his victims, Brenda Woodard, write a note that he left on her dead body. The note is creepy on its own, and we will explore that in one of the episodes in great detail. It also was bizarre that he had the victim write the note. She had to have known near the end that she was going to be killed. That was calculating to me chilling that he would have his victim do this. The twist in all this was the Green Vega gang. Several members of this gang confessed to these crimes, and the internet is littered with the stories of how they claim they did it. Littered is probably the right word here. Like so many things on the net, these accusations don't hold water. Ray Bannon, the federal prosecutor that took the gang down, took almost three hours to unravel everything for us. It was creepy, and it left me wanting more. One thing I can say, the Freeway Phantom case has characters in it as well. Some are heroes, and some are definitely villains. It really does grab you. It bothered me that the victims were so young. One was as young as 10 years old, and the oldest was only 18. What kind of predator is sexually attracted to such young women? It's beyond creepy. 
It makes you wonder what was in his personal background that made him commit such horrible acts on young girls. On top of that, many victims were abducted in daylight hours, in neighborhoods where they were known, where someone should have seen something, heard something, anything. Sexual assault was also part of the killer's M.O. All of the victims were strangled, except for one who was stabbed. It told me that he took his victims from their safe neighborhoods to his place, a place where he could have his way with them. He killed them, put them in his car, and drove them along busy streets and highways. He then stopped, pulled them out from his car, and left them there. Someone should have seen him doing this, but after all these decades, not a single person has come forward with tangible information. Victoria, you raised some good points that really resonate with me. He spent time with his victims. When you look at Carol Spinks... She had been with him for three days before he killed her. There's physical evidence to back that up. But some victims he only spent a few minutes with. That is strange behavior, and it does make your skin crawl. How did he keep his victims captive? That question bothered me a lot during our research into these cases. You get a mental picture of the movie The Silence of the Lambs with Buffalo Bill and his pit. How did he do it? More importantly, where did he do it? We will talk about this later when we get into the profile of the killer. One thing that drew me in on this case was that the killer began to leave the remains of his victims in other jurisdictions. One was left on National Park Service land, which brought in the park police and the FBI. Several were left in Prince George's County. The Maryland State Police had one case, and of course, the Washington Police were also involved. Anytime that you get multiple agencies involved, it seems to slow investigations, if not bog them down entirely. It makes me wonder if the killer did this on purpose, or was it just pure luck on his part? If he did do it on purpose, it demonstrates an understanding of police investigations and might help narrow down the list of suspects. Was the phantom cunning or just lucky? That question has nagged at me for the last year or more. Victoria, you know I am a historian at heart. I think it's really important to frame these murders against the times when they occurred. You have to understand the culture of the city at the time. And the early 1970s was a time of turbulence in our nation's capital. It was three years after the riots linked to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and D.C. was scarred physically and emotionally. Racial tensions had not ebbed since those riots. If anything, it was a pressure cooker. On top of that, you had the massive protests against the Vietnam War. Thousands poured into Washington, D.C. almost every weekend to march against the war. And in the middle of these terrible crimes, the Watergate break-in happens. Crimes happen all the time in the District of Columbia, but this one had an impact directly on the Phantom investigations. Precious resources from the FBI that had been working on the Freeway Phantom cases were pulled off to investigate the Watergate break-in and the subsequent cover-up. It was incredible that these national events had a direct impact on the Freeway Phantom cases. It also helps explain how the story wormed its way to the back burner. The D.C. newspapers were filled with the Watergate scandal, and it reduced the amount of press space that was available for what many saw 
as a local story. It really opens up questions about race being an issue in these cases. The victims were all young black girls. Many came from the southeast neighborhoods of D.C., known as the lower-income areas where crime was more of an issue. You have to know the district during that period. Over 70% of the citizens were black. At that time, 80% of the police force was white. Only one out of three high school freshmen in the D.C. public schools went on to actually graduate. Police solved murder rates about the same for blacks and whites during that period, with only 9% not getting solved. To the black citizens, this statistic meant little to nothing. What they saw was a larger number of their murders not being solved, and they were right. I still wonder, though, if these had been young white girls that were murdered, would there have been a different level of interest in the media and with investigators? You know, what I found interesting was that when we talked about race with former officers, they were split on that subject. Detective Jim Trainum, who is white, felt that race was an issue in the investigation. Detective Romaine Jenkins, who was black, didn't think it was a dominating factor. Like so many aspects of these murders, you have to shelve your preconceived notions and expectations. One thing we learned is you have to go where the evidence takes you. Your mentioning of Romaine Jenkins is something that really triggers some of my motivation in researching these murders. Detective Jenkins is a real inspiration for me. She was the kind of person that inspires you to dig deeper in cases like this. She didn't just fill in the gaps on these crimes. She also told us about some potentially related cases. It was a real surprise to me about which victims were actually attributed to the freeway phantom. Another aspect that was chilling to me was another serial killing spree involving the same neighborhoods, which has also remained unsolved. Was this decade-long cooling-off period for the killer? Or did the District of Columbia have another serial killer attacking and killing women? She led us down a lot of avenues that might very well change what people know about these cases. I strongly believe what draws people into the Freeway Phantom cases is the mystique around a serial killer. Also, there was a lot of tangible physical evidence to link many of these crimes together. Serial killers always draw a lot of attention from true crime aficionados. I remember one publisher telling me that if we put the words serial killer on the book cover, you guarantee a large number of additional book sales. People are weirdly drawn to serial murder cases. It's almost like how some people are fans of horror movies. It is a subgenre of true crime because it's rare and it's frightening. Some of it is the randomness of such crimes. The hunter-stalker profile of the killer is frightening to people. People like to try and get in the head of a serial killer. They want to understand why they behave the way they do. The Freeway Phantom case has a lot of that, too. What surprised me about this case was the amount of stonewalling and outright cover-up by the agencies involved. When we worked our other cases, like the Colonial Parkway murders, we always found the FBI to be pretty standoffish. I mean, it makes sense. The FBI doesn't like working with authors or investigative researchers. They have it their way, which is the FBI way, of working a case, and that doesn't include us. Strangely enough, 
The FBI proved to be the most cooperative agency that we had contacted, and they were forthcoming with our Freedom of Information Act requests. That bothered me, too. And I wanted to make sure that we give the proper amount of attention in a later episode to some of the stonewalling. It wasn't just that the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police were uncooperative. They actually took measures to block our interactions with other law enforcement agencies in Maryland. I want to keep professional about this, but it was a douchebag move on their part. It made me ask, why are they trying to keep us in the dark? We've talked a lot about why the Phantom cases are interesting. I think our next episode, we need to really explore and discuss the crimes and the victims. The only real way to start talking about this investigation and how it went, both right and wrong, starts and ends with the victims. With so many murders, we won't be able to cover them all in one episode, but we should go ahead and get started. The first known victim of the Freeway Phantom was Carol Denise Spinks. I mention her middle name intentionally since several of the victims had Denise in their name and the media speculated, as did the authorities, that it may have been a motive for the killer. More on that later. April 25th, 1971 was a warm Sunday. 13-year-old Carol had gone to the 7-Eleven about a half a mile from her home in the Congress Heights neighborhood of D.C. She had been spotted there by her mother, Allentine, coming out of the store. It was early evening. Her mother reprimanded her for being out of the house and told her to go home immediately. Carol had been sent to the store by her older sister, Valerie, to purchase five TV dinners, bread, and soda. She knew she wasn't supposed to be out on her own, but it was only seven blocks away from the home. The store manager remembered her purchasing the items and leaving. When Carol didn't come home at 7.40 p.m., her mother reported her missing to the Washington Metropolitan Police. Her friends and family indicated that she was not the kind of kid to get into a stranger's car. You're going to hear that a lot with these victims. Two things about this are worth mentioning. First, the day before Carol Spinks disappeared, there was over a half million war protesters descending on the District of Columbia, stretching law enforcement to the breaking point. I have always wondered if the killer had deliberately chosen this time to strike at his first victim, knowing that the street patrols would be few and far between. Second, you have to remember, it is 1971. There are no Amber Alerts. Missing children reports were not handled the same way that they are now. Officers usually waited a full 24 hours to begin even searching for a missing child in those days. Those are good points. There were two other witnesses that had seen her that night. One, a 14-year-old girl, saw her heading into the 7-Eleven store. Nothing really helpful there. The other, Cecilia Diggs, allegedly saw her jumped by two black men and rushed into a blue car. She claimed that the victim, Carol, was walking with Deborah Harrison, another friend at the time. Harrison denied Diggs' series of events. You don't know with kids at that age how reliable they are. Apparently, the Washington MPD did not put much credence into the dig story at the time. Carol remained missing until Saturday, May 1st, 1971. 
an 11-year-old boy was playing near the Suitland Parkway in I-295 in the District of Columbia. He wandered away from his friends and found the body of Carol Spinks near the Naval Research Lab and the rear grounds of the St. Elizabeth's Hospital. She was found on the northbound lanes of I-295. Now, in some reports, she was 200 yards away from the Suitland Parkway, but in others, she was 500 yards. She was found face down, but someone had turned the body over by the time that the officers had arrived, so already the crime scene was contaminated. She was listed as a Jane Doe and taken to the D.C. coroner's office for autopsy. There were signs of sexual molestation and abrasions on her hands and face. She had been strangled, and there was crescent-shaped fingernail impressions on her neck, likely from the killer's hands. She was clothed but missing her size 8 sneakers. Negroid hairs were found along with synthetic rayon fibers that were green on the inside of her shorts and underwear. They found some skin under her fingernails, but remember, this was the age before DNA testing. This is where her case takes a turn into the strange. Those fibers are important, and where they are found is important. That means that her clothing was taken off of her and exposed to the source of the fibers, then put back on. This actually tells us a lot about the killer. Strangulation is key, too. It is a personal crime, usually done from the front. It isn't quick, either. This killer had issues with women, young girls. His method of murder was up close and brutal. On top of that, the autopsy said that she had been dead for two to three days before her body was found. That means that the killer had kept her alive for almost three days before killing her. In her stomach, they found undigested citrus fruit, so he had fed her as well. We saw nothing in the files on this case indicating that she had marks from being tied up or restrained. This means that the killer had her in a place where her screams for help could not be heard, where he could keep her with very little risk of her getting away. So the police were learning a lot from what they discovered so far. Of course, at the time, the Washington MPD had no idea that they were dealing with the first of many victims. To them, this was simply a young girl who had run afoul of the wrong man, a brutal sexual pedophile. Next time on Tantamount, we dive into the other young murder victims as the Freeway Phantom begins to perfect his murderous technique. Tantamount is based on the book by the same name written by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. It is available from Wild Blue Press on Amazon.com. You can go to the author's blog at blainepardo.wordpress.com for additional information on these episodes. The Freeway Phantom is an unsolved case. 
All suspects named in this podcast are presumed innocent until proven guilty. If you have information that could help authorities, please call the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department at 202-727-9099 or via email at unsolved.murder at dc.gov. Tantamount is written and produced by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. Our music was written and performed by Ed Miller. Production assistance provided by Cindy Pardo.